Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the leader of the universe. You're wise. You're just. You're good. Because you're all powerful and all knowing, it's impossible that you would make any decision other than a perfect decision. And Lord, we concede that as human beings, as men and women, with the responsibility to lead our families and to lead our businesses, to lead um, in whatever capacity that you've placed us in, Lord, we don't know everything about everything. We're not all wise and we're not all just. And so, Lord, we look to you for wisdom. Lord, we look to you to help us understand the right choices that need to be made in our lives. Lord, we look to you so that we can be godly men and women, godly husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, godly employers. Lord, we pray that the sacred trust that you've given to us, that, Lord, we would honor you. And so, Father, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerar, the son of Bekorot, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they went not there. Then they passed through the land of the Benjamites, and they did not find them. And when they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, Look now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said. Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, 
Yes, there he is just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to this city because there's a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up for about this time you will find him. So they went up to the city. And as they were coming up into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him commander over my people, Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, there he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they've been found. And on what is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on your father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the, the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is. What was kept back? It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They arose early and it was about dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house saying, get up that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. So Samuel said to Saul, went outside, he and Samuel, verse 27, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, but you stand here a while that I may announce the word of God to you. And I'm going to read the first verse of chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? I'm sure that each and every one of you can point back to a time in the past where you woke up one morning and it was a pretty normal morning and you thought it was going to be a normal day. But through a series of circumstances, you met someone and when you met that someone, your whole life was going to be changed as a result of it. 
When I first took a job from living in the high desert, the Mojave Desert, and took a job as a supervisor with the welfare department, little did I know that there would be a girl who lived in this place, that I would attend a church and that I would show up at church like I had shown up at church many times before, and there she would be, and my whole life would be different. I'm sure each and every one of you have gone through what you thought was an ordinary circumstance and it resulted in an extraordinary change. That's exactly what you're going to see in chapter 9. The choosing of Saul as king in, in what seems like an ordinary set of circumstances which leads to a, an extraordinary outcome. Saul is a young man who seems to have everything going for him. He comes from a reasonably well family. He's tall. He's good looking. He's impressive. And he's entrusted with a special task in verses 3 through 14. And he genuinely seems to be steered by the supernatural leading of God in verses 3 through 14. And Saul is chosen to be the king not by himself, not by Samuel. Not by the people, but by the Lord. Apparently, God has chosen Saul to deliver God's people. And Saul will conduct himself with a certain measure of humility when we get to the end of the chapter. And so the crowning of Saul is sort of like a three-act play. It begins in chapter 9, continues in chapter 10, will come to a close in, in chapter 11, Samuel's private anointing becomes a sort of a public ratification by the people who acclaim Saul the king in chapter 10, verses 20 through 24. And finally, the Lord will substantiate that anointing in, in what might be called a charisma, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Saul, by which Saul is able to secure his first battle over the enemy in chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Tall, good-looking, apparently humble. But we know that looks can be deceiving. That when you look on the outward circumstances, it doesn't always reveal what's going on inside of the heart. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, those of you who have been following along in 1 Samuel... You'll remember that the people asked for a king. And what kind of a king were they looking for? They were looking for a king who was like the other kings. Remember, they wanted a king like the other nations. Remember, they weren't looking for a man after God's own heart. They were looking for a king who would lead them and guide them. But here was part of their criteria. He had to look like a king and he had to act like a king and he had to talk like a king and walk like a king. And so, those of you who are familiar and you understand what is about to take place, how Saul's life and monarchy and kingdom is going to start off pretty good, but it's going to, it's going to end pretty bad, isn't it? It seems important to ask a, a, a question right off the bat. Why does God allow certain people to lead when it looks like they're destined to fail? 
Why does God allow people to enter into marriages or friendships or relationships or businesses that are destined to fail, businesses that are destined to collapse? How many people have you said, well, this is not the man I married. This is not the woman that I married. This is not, life didn't turn out the way that I I thought it was going to turn out. And so people might ask and answer the question, well, why does God allow Saul to become the king? And you know what the right answer is, at least in part? God is going to allow Saul to be king in order to answer those people's prayer. He's going to be a man, but he's not going to be a man after God's own heart. And he is going to afflict the people and he's going to chasten the people and he's going to prepare the people for the man who is the man after God's own heart, David. And in verse one, it says there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. He was the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorat, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. So Saul, his lineage is traced back four generations. Kish is a man of some means. The very fact that he has servants and that he has a herd of donkeys means he has some financial means. And when you come to the end of the verse where it says he's a mighty man of power, it's a Hebrew word which means that he's valiant. He's a warrior. So apparently this is a person who has certain skills, not just in the area of making money, but he is a person who we might call a military man. So Saul is the son of a military man. And again, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, Saul's uncle, Kish's brother, is also a military man. And in verse 2 it says, And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. or Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, by the way, remember... But what does Saul's name mean? Do you remember? His name means asked for. As a matter of fact, his name in the Hebrew means that which is asked for. Remember what happened earlier? You asked for a king. I am now going to give you what you asked for. Now, by the way, remember the meaning of Samuel's name. Remember when we go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 20, and Hannah and and the circumstances that she was facing and the miserable circumstances that she was facing and she poured out her heart to the Lord and she promised the Lord that if, if he if she gave, if the Lord gave her a child, she would devote this child to the Lord. And she named him Shamuel or Samuel. And Samuel's name means God is listening or God heard me or the Lord hears with the idea that he responds. Saul is handsome. He's tall. As a matter of fact, when the verse says, not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. It's, it's probably not a 
a, a situation where, you know, they had a beauty contest or a handsome contest and Saul wins the contest. The idea is he is head and shoulders above everyone else. He looks like how you would expect a king to look. Imagine someone who is as tall as Conan O'Brien, but he looks like Brad Pitt. He has the best of all worlds. He's tall. He's good looking. He carries himself with a, with a sort of air of regalness, charm. Um, and this is interesting. Because the people have asked for a king, and they clearly haven't asked for a king after God's own heart. Leaders are often chosen for their charisma, for their appearance, for their charm. But charisma and appearance and charm aren't necessarily the ingredients that it's going to provide what I would call effective leadership. If I were to take the word leadership and I would try to boil it down to one other word, to define leadership, the word that I would use is influence. That's what a leader is. A leader is a man or a woman who influences other. If I could even use one more word to describe a leader, I would use the term inspirational influence. Because leaders, for good or for bad, for right or for wrong, are influencing people in a right direction or in a, in a wrong direction. Leaders lead. They influence. They influence people. And they do it for either good or for evil. By the way, when you're looking for a leader, it would probably do well to look at their character to look at their family life, to look at their integrity, to look at their skill, to look at their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, to look at the gifts and callings that have been placed in their life, and to look at their trustworthiness. I'm a dad, so I don't mind bragging about my kids from time to time. My son Miguel, when he got out of high school, one of his very first jobs was he worked at the Shane Company. Remember those of you who have heard the radio ad, now you have a friend in the diamond business. Miguel got the job not because he scored the highest on a particular test or because he graduated at the top of his class or because he took courses in, in gymnology. When you have a person working in a vault with $100 million or $200 million worth of diamonds, what do you suppose is the most important thing that you can have going for you? It's honesty. It's integrity. It's character. The reason why he was hired is because the man who hired him knew that he could place him in a vault worth of, full of diamonds and he isn't going to walk out with a pocket full of diamonds. Your integrity is what will keep you. It will mold you. It will shape you. The true measure of a man, the true measure of a woman is his or her commitment to Christ. Their willingness to love and honor and obey the Lord. You'll remember in John's Gospel, chapter 7, the Lord said, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. 
Now, when we look at verse 3, it says, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, please take one of the servants with you and arise and look for the donkeys. Now, donkeys were really, really expensive. A donkey isn't just a donkey. This is money. As a matter of fact, the judges would ride on a donkey. Uh, leaders would ride on a donkey. The vast majority of people in the time of Saul and David walked and donkeys were a major luxury. Imagine when the whole herd escapes. It's like a dealership and you own the dealership and all the cars are swiped off the lot. Hey, this is the bread and the butter. Now think about it for just a moment. Saul is given a task. It's a pretty simple task. Go look for the donkeys. But what's interesting, again, as we read it, God is going to use this task. God is going to use these donkeys to bring Saul in contact with Samuel so that he might be anointed king. And you probably remember times growing up where you're doing things that seem so ordinary. You're just going to school. You're minding your own business. You're doing this or that. Or, or all of a sudden you're watching TV and, and you look at a person playing the guitar and you want to learn how to play the guitar. Or you see an athlete in a particular sport and you want to play a particular sport. Or you go to a fair and you see someone making preserves and you want to learn how to do that. All of a sudden you're just going through your life and you're learning a particular job, a particular skill, a particular circumstance, and you never have any idea that God is going to use those passions, those circumstances, that family to point you in a particular direction. And in verse 4 it says, So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find him. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but he didn't find them. Now, we're learning something right off the bat about Saul. Number one, the father says to the son, take the servant, go and look for the donkeys. Does he disobey his dad or does he obey his dad? He obeys him. Why do you think that just that little, little bit of information is important? Because when you're a child or you're a young adult or you're, you're a person growing up and you learn to obey your mother and your father in things that you want to do and things that you don't want to do, isn't that really roughly the way that you can divide life in general? Things that you want to do and things that you don't want to do. And when you are a young adult, and some of you are a young adult, some of you are not so young adult. Do you remember in your mind thinking, I like people telling me what to do? Well, that would be a big fat no for, for many of you. I don't like people telling me what to do. I don't like my mother. I don't like my father. I don't like the boss. I don't like my coach. I don't like my teacher. I don't want people telling me what to do. But guess what? The moment that you begin to understand what the Bible teaches concerning authority, that all authority has been established by God. 
as shocking, as annoying, as frustrating as that is, each and every person has been given a mother and a father. Each and every person typically has someone in authority over them. Each and every person usually has to answer to at least someone else. Now, the reason why this becomes an important point, Saul's willingness to obey his father is going to place him in a position where he's going in a direction that God had planned all along. Does that make sense to you? Now, it says, So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha. Now, for those of you who aren't biblical scholars necessary, or you don't understand the geography of, 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 of the land, or you don't understand how the tribal units were divided, there were a fairly large tribe in the south called Judah. There was an, an even larger tribe to the north called Ephraim. And in between this very gigantic tribe called Judah and this very gigantic tribe called Ephraim was this little sliver of a tribe called Benjamin. And so when it says he passes through the mountains of Ephraim, it means that he's gone over 15 miles. He's going in and out, zigging and zagging, passing through the land. He keeps searching. Now think carefully. He's obedient and he's persistent in the task. He, he looks for a day and he doesn't give up. He looks for two days and he doesn't give up. He looks for three days and he doesn't give up. Does he find the donkeys? No, he doesn't find the donkeys. He's unsuccessful but persistent. Why do you suppose even that little bit of information is important? Has someone in authority ever asked you to do something and you did it for the first day and you did it for the second day, but by the third day you thought, this is not happening. I'm not good at this. Clearly, looking for donkeys is not my thing. And when they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. Now, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. The first way of looking at it is there comes a point where the search has to come to an end. And is it a sign of a tender heart and a, t and a sign of sensitivity where he starts to think, hey, you know, the donkeys are important. But by now, I'm thinking dad might be concerned about me. And about you. And that makes perfect sense. He's thinking about what's going on in his father's mind. I want you to understand something, even as you're reading this. Is Saul looking for a kingdom? Is Saul looking for a crown? Is he looking for glory? He's looking for donkeys. The reason why this becomes even an important issue is we're often engaged in lesser goals. But the Lord has something greater in mind. You might have been looking for a job or you might be looking for a mate or you might be looking for something. You're looking for something. You're looking 
for something, but you had no idea that you were looking for eternal life. You were looking for forgiveness of sin. You were looking for hope. I remember before I became a Christian, I had zero idea. You know, if you were to ask me, hey, are you engaged in a big philosophical or theological journey as you're trying to explore and understand the most significant things in the universe? I would say no. How did you become a Christian? A guy invited me to a, a concert at Calvary Chapel at Costa Mesa. Well, were you really keenly interested in music? No, it, it, there were two cheerleaders going. I was keenly interested in girls. So are you saying that you had impure motives? Oh, uh, yeah. I wasn't looking to go to a church and find God and discover truth. But God had a different plan. God had always been preparing me for a time where the emptiness and the division inside of my heart would be such that I needed to know Him. I needed to experience forgiveness of sin and hope. But now Saul's ready to give up. He's ready to throw in the towel. Now, I want you to think back even on your own life. I want you to think about the circumstances that you've been through. And because I know you, I know some of your circumstances. I know some of the pain and the hardship that some of you have had to deal with. I know some of the diseases that you've had to struggle with. I know some of the accidents that you've been in. I know some of the setbacks that you've experienced. I know some about the, about the failed relationships that you've been in. And you see the pain and you see the heartache and you see the brokenness and you wonder, you wonder, you wonder exactly what God was trying to do in all of those circumstances. But as you look back on those circumstances, you begin to realize and you begin to put your finger on the fact that God was using even those wicked and weird circumstances of your life to bring you to a place where you would understand that God had a plan and a purpose for you. And it's interesting that the servant, look what it says, and he, that is the servant that is with Saul, said to him, hey, look now, there is in the city a man of God, and he's an honorable man. And this is going to be important in verse 6. All that he says surely comes to pass. If you're one of those kinds of people who underline your Bible, that's one of those sentences that you're going to want to underline. Surely all that he says comes to pass. In other words, this is going to be important because later on, are Samuel and Saul going to have a lot of conversations? The answer is yes. And as Samuel speaks to Saul, guess what? When Samuel is speaking on behalf of the Lord, everything that he says comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. One of the things that you have to understand, even though it might be difficult for you to understand, is the place where Saul is from. And the place where Samuel is from in Ramah is only about 15 miles away. When I was a kid growing up in the high desert, I lived in a place called Hesperia. It means the cattle are dead. That's the Greek word for us. It's the Mojave Desert. I mean, it is a dead, dead, dead place. 
And the nearest town to us in Hesperia was a little podunk train station called Victorville. We affectionately called it Hooterville. San Bernardino was the largest city nearest to us. It was about 30 miles. Victorville was about 15 miles. It had a movie theater and a drive-in. It was the big city. If you wanted excitement, you go to Victorville. So you have at least some idea of what's going on in that place closest to you. But you know what's interesting? Saul has no idea who Samuel is. Don't you find that interesting? Imagine you found yourself in Boone, North Carolina. It's the home of the famous evangelist, Billy Graham. Now imagine you go to Boone, North Carolina, and someone says, hey, this is the place where Billy Graham lives. And they say to you, who's that? No, you laugh, but you understand what I'm saying. It's sort of like, are there people who live in a world where the name Billy Graham means nothing to them? I know in the world in which I grew up in, if you were to ask me about Billy Graham, I might know his name, but he would mean nothing to me. Saul continues at the suggestion of a servant. He doesn't say, look, you're the servant and I am the son of of the owner of you. You don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do. Is that the answer he gets? No. He's actually even willing to take advice from a servant. He listens to the servant's suggestion to go see the man of God. Now, we're not told why Saul doesn't know him, but I'm going to make a suggestion to you, and it's just a suggestion. I'm going to suggest to you the reason why Saul has no idea who this person is is because there's no religious pretensions about Saul. Saul's not a religious person. Clearly, he's a Jew, and he lives in the land of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, but he isn't what you would call a religious person by any stretch of the imagination and take special note of the statement he's an honorable man all that he says comes to pass and then in verse 7 then Saul said to his servant but look if we go what shall we bring the man he is enough of a Jew and he is enough of a religious person that that he knows that you don't just go to the seer or the prophet empty handed for the bread in our vessel is gone. There's no present to bring to the man of God. We don't have anything to give him. It's probably not a good idea. Now, this becomes an important thing, too. When you were being led in the direction of having a right relationship with God in Christ, and people were encouraging you to go in the direction of discovering who Jesus is, discovering things about the Bible, maybe inviting you to church. And all the person knows about church is, look, I don't know too much about church, but I know that they pass a bucket, and I don't have anything to put in the bucket. 
It doesn't make sense to go to church because they're going to pass the bucket and I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to have to do what I've always done. I have to pretend like I'm getting something out of my, my, my pocket and I'm closing my hand and no one can really see what's in it. And so I'm sort of faking it as I'm pretending I'm putting change in the bucket. I'm not going to ask you if you ever did that. I'm just going to tell you I did that. I won't speak for you, but hey, again, I don't know how the religious game is played. But it's, again, interesting. In verse 8 it says, And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at one-fourth of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God to tell us, the man of God to tell us our way. Look, a fourth of a shekel, a shekel was a fairly large sum of money. If you fast forward a thousand years to the time of Jesus, a shekel was a week's wage. A half a shekel was the temple tax that every observant Jew had to pay when they went and they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So a quarter shekel was at least an amount of money. Let me just put it to you bluntly. It was about a day's wage. So the servant has a day's wage, which, which in the time of Jesus would have been enough for a loaf of bread, two cups of wine, and a place to stay. So with this quarter shekel, imagine, you know, you've been traveling for three days. You're, you're, you're nowhere to be found. This is the money that you have. This, if you made it stretch, could be gas money all the way back to, to where they need to go. But they're willing to give it up. And it says in verse 9, I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. And then there's this little note that's given in verse 9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus. Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. The prophet or the seer was the person who had special insight from God discernment from God. And so the prophet of God or the seer of God was the person that people went to when they were in trouble and they needed to hear from God or they needed advice from God. And so in verse 10, it says, then Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. (laughs) So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? Now, again, it's towards the evening because that's when women went to the well in the ancient world. Towards the evening, they would go to the well in order to draw the water. This is where the girls hang out. But as they're hanging out, who shows up? Brad Pitt. Here is this tall, handsome major, good-looking stranger. And you'll notice that the girls talk a little bit more than they normally talk in the Bible. And as they're going up, as they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women, and they asked the question, is the seer here? And in verse 12 it says, and they answered them and said, yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Keep talking. Hurry now, for today he came to the city. What else can we say to this guy? Because there's a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. Now, again, interestingly enough, is it possible 
that the Lord could use something as simple as cheerleaders to keep you going in the direction that God has assigned for you. And it, it, would, it would seem that that's exactly what's happening. The Lord is providing a little additional help from the girls. They're coming out of the city. And the sacrifice described here, I suspect, has to do with the peace offering. It's spoken of in Leviticus chapter 7. Remember, 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 the people in the ancient days sought the high places of worship. And it would appear that Samuel made a high place of worship in his hometown. Remember, for those of you who've been studying along in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was. But remember, the Philistines went and they destroyed the tabernacle at Shiloh. And so, because the place had been destroyed by the Philistines, several worship centers were established throughout the land. And when they would establish worship centers in the land, they would go to the highest place. And it would serve as a sort of sacred site. And by the way, these high places are going to become a problem in the future of Israel. Because it was, it's also going to become the target of idol worship. Because when you come to the high place, let's say you have the high place of worship, but that now foreign idols, foreign gods, idolatry is introduced And so the high place also became the place of false gods and false worship, which is later going to be fiercely condemned by God. And so they're coming to this place. It's the time of the sacrifice. It's the peace offering. In verse 13, as soon as you come into the city, you'll surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up for... About this time you will find him. So the idea at the peace offering, when they would offer the sacrifice, part of the sacrifice would go to the priest, and part of the sacrifice would go to the attendants, but part of the sacrifice would go to the worshipers who show up. Imagine someone says to you, Hey, on Friday they're having a potluck at Calvary. It's called manja in a movie, and there's free food for anyone who shows up. And the person says, there's only one thing I like more than food. Free food. And so it would draw people. They would come and they would eat. And so, (laughs) it says in verse 14, so they went up to the city and as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on the way up to the high place. Now, this is interesting. Because the Bible says, That the steps of a righteous man or a good man, the steps of a righteous man, the steps of a righteous woman are ordered by the Lord, it says in Psalm 37, 23. Dad says, go look for the donkeys. Servant says, don't give up. The women say, that's the direction if you really need advice when you're lost. Here's a promising young man. Here's a trustworthy young man. Here's a sensitive young man. But I think that even though he is trustworthy, and even though he's sensitive, and even though he's tall, and even though he's good looking, he's also spiritually clueless. But even though he's spiritually clueless, 
God has a plan. And God has a purpose. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus, speaking to His own disciples, He says, However, when He, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He won't speak on His own authority, but whatever He learns, He will speak, and He will tell you the things to come, even for people who don't know where to go in order to get accurate information or truthful information about things. The Bible says that there is a source of information that will give you the truth if you really want to know the truth. And in verse 15 it says, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. Neither the servant nor Saul have any clue that God has spoken to Samuel about them. And you were probably clueless. You had no idea that your mother was praying for you, that your father was praying for you, that your grandmother was praying for you, that a friend was praying for you. I had no clue that in high school, because I was so weird and because I was so wicked, the little tiny group of Christians banded together and they asked each other this question. Who's the most wicked and perverse person on campus? And one person said, I nominate Gene Geraci. Another person said, I second the motion. The Christian said, all in favor say aye. They go, aye. So who is the person causing us the most problem, the most persecution, the most frustration? It's Gino. So let's start praying for him. And they start praying for him. And they pray day after day. And they pray week after week. And as they're praying month after month, little did I know that God was working behind the scenes to change everything. I didn't know. All I knew is that I hated them. And they loved me. And I'm sure that Saul had no idea that God had spoken to the man of God. Samuel had an appointment to bless a sacrifice, but he was going to anoint a king. And Saul thought he had an appointment with a herd of donkeys. Little did he know that his whole world was about to be rocked. By the way, the word translated commander isn't the usual word for king. In the Hebrew language, the word for king is melech. Some of you are familiar with the word melchizedek. It's from that word melech. It means the king. And so here the word could be translated commander or captain or prince. It's the Hebrew word that's translated in Daniel chapter 9, Messiah, Nagib, the prince. 
And the Lord lists one of the reasons why he's going to do it. Look what it says. That he may save my people from the hand of Philistines. Again, if you're one of those people who underline your Bibles, that's one of those underlining moments. Well, I don't understand why God would allow Saul, who's clearly going to be a big, fat, stinking problem. Why would he allow Saul to lead? Because guess what? In the first years of Saul's reign and clearly into David's reign, the biggest security threat that the Israelis face is the Philistine threat. The Philistines threaten to annihilate them. And so that threat had to be eliminated. The Philistines were a menace, a real threat to the existence of the children of Israel. And God was going to use this man to eliminate the threat. And look what the Lord says, because this is the key verse. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. Do you understand what's happening? Were they wicked and were they carnal when they asked for a king? Yeah. Were they wicked and were they carnal when they asked for a king who didn't have a heart after God? Yeah. But was the threat real and were the enemies real? The answer is yes. You know what's the most important thing about that passage in part? God heard their prayers. Because even though they were weird, and even though they were wicked, and even though they were carnal, and even though they were selfish, and even though they were afflicted by their enemies, look what the Lord says. For I have looked upon my people. Do you realize that each and every person who comes to a right relationship with God in Christ can rightly be called my people. You see, the Lord has always known about you. The Lord has always known that He would send Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. The Lord has always known about the circumstances of your birth. The Lord has always known the environment in which you would grow up in. The Lord has always known about the wickedness and the weirdness that you would experience. The Lord has always known that He loves you and that He's going to reach out to you and that He's going to have the Holy Spirit convict you of your sin and then extend an invitation of life and love and hope. And the Lord has always known those who would accept that invitation and those who would reject that invitation. So that even when you were crying, even when it was a dark moment, even when you thought no one else was listening, the Lord was listening to your cry. He heard you. And he wanted someone to tell you the truth. That the Lord God of this universe, the Savior of Israel, is also your Savior. And so, their heartfelt cries because of the constant danger was heard by the Lord. So why do you suppose the Lord chose someone from the land of Benjamin? Remember what I told you before? Judah, very huge tribe. Ben, uh, excuse me. Ephraim, very huge tribe. If you have two gigantic tribes vying for control and leadership, do you think it's going to create animosity and bitterness and tension? If you have two major parties, 
and one feels left out because the other one is neglected and you have this little third party that gets elected. And everybody's happy. A king from either of those other tribes would have surely generated a great deal of jealousy. But think about what the Lord is doing in providing a king. He's answering their prayer, but he's also going to punish unbelief. In verse 17 it says, So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This is the one that shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? And Samuel answered Saul and said, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go, and I will tell you everything that is in your heart. Different scholars have different ideas over what that particular passage means. Some have suggested that it means that because Saul is going to spend the night with Samuel, he's going to lay out for him what it means to lead, what it means to be the king what it means to occupy this particular office. And then he says, but it's for your donkeys that were lost three days ago. Don't be anxious about them, for they've been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on your father's house? You're out looking for donkeys in all the wrong places. And God has something entirely different in mind for you. Sounds like it could be a song out. Looking for donkeys in all the wrong places. God has a different idea of what He wants to do. Clearly, the Lord had told Samuel about Saul. Think about it. The Lord revealed to Samuel the circumstances of Saul. What Saul was really after. Saul's mission. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then are you speaking to, to me like this? I'm nobody, he says. As a matter of fact, it, it, it reminds me of, of what Gideon said in Judges chapter 6, verse 6, uh, 15. I'm not worthy of this kind of attention. Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. Are you crazy? This is crazy talk. No, the Lord has spoken to me and God's going to use you. God's going to make you the commander and the leader. In verse 22, now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. Imagine you get invited to a church. And then you get placed at the head of the church. And then they give you a robe and a ring and a bottle of champagne and a little gold crown and a gift certificate. So what? What is happening here? This is like crazy. And in verse 22, now Samuel took Saul and his servant, brought them into the hall. Verse 23, and Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So they give him the best, the choicest meat, the one that would normally be set aside for the priest in verse 24. So the cook took up the thigh with the upper part and set it before Saul. And said, Now remember, these guys have been wandering in the bushes for three days. 
Imagine you are broke down on the road somewhere between Raton Pass and Albuquerque, New Mexico in the middle of nowhere. And you haven't eaten for three days. And all of a sudden, they take you to an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet. You're like going, this is unbelievable. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Now again, Saul's not simply surprised by his invitation to eat with Samuel. He's even more surprised that he's given the place of honor. And the answer Samuel gives is really interesting. Hey, what did I do to deserve all of this? And you would expect, if you're Samuel, to go, okay, Lord, I expect at least some ambition, some drive. Okay, if this guy is going to be the leader of the nation, don't you expect him to have at least some intellectual skills? Don't you... Expect some degree of political experience? Don't you expect this person should be qualified to lead? In verse 25, when they had come from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. And then they arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. And they were going to the outskirts of the city. And Samuel says to Saul, Tell the servant to go ahead of us. And he went on, But you stand here a while, that I may announce to you the word of God. Samuel's going to instruct Saul on what it means to be a king, on what it means to be a leader. Now, you have to understand part of the dynamic that's taking place. Who is the leader at this moment in Israel? Samuel is the leader. Samuel is the leader. And he's going to have to relinquish leadership to this Yahoo from, from the tribe of Benjamin. He's tall and he's good looking. But there's something interesting. Three things prove the prophetic role of Samuel. Even though Saul is going to be king, Samuel is going to remain a, a prophet. And th three things prove that prophetic role. The future is revealed to Samuel in verse 15. Events unknown to others are revealed to Samuel in verse 20. The word of God, that is the instructions of God for another person is given through Samuel. And you know what this is? This creates a sort of balance of powers in this government. Saul is the king. But Samuel wants Saul and the rest of Israel to remember that even though they've asked for a king, in reality, God is still the king. And if Saul is smart, what will he do? He will ask the prophet of God to hear the word of God so that they can go in the direction that God has established. And that's the idea. As you can imagine, the service of the prophet is valuable both to the nation as a whole and to the kingdom in particular because Samuel is going to be a kind of a prophetic blueprint for all the other prophets who are going to follow in the Old Testament. Each and every king is going to have a prophet who's going to come to him and tell him to do what God wants him to do. And you're going to have two kinds of kings. The king who says... Forget you, I'm going to do whatever I want. And then you're going to have the kind that says, okay, the man of God has spoken. Let's do what the man of God says. The reason why this becomes important to you, godly leadership, is different from ungodly leadership, isn't it? 
that's the check in the balance. The Bible says, children, honor your mother and your father because your mother and your father have been placed in godly leadership over you. But the Bible also says, mother and dad, don't exasperate your children. The Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. When a mom and a dad tell children what to do from a godly perspective, then it makes perfect sense that they should be able to respond. The people of Israel were to retain the Lord God as their king because the Lord is the true king. But the prophet wants to remind them not to trust armies, not to trust government or treaties with the enemies. They were to trust the Lord when you're dealing with people who stockpile cash and weapons but they're bankrupt when it comes to moral currency and spiritual weapons. And there's a kind of a balance of powers that will begin to emerge. Is the king the king? The answer is yes. Does the king owe it to both God and the people to consult the prophet? Yes. The ideal government for Israel was a king who listened to the prophet. Both king and prophet acting in submission to the lordship of God. And that's the model of leadership that's given to us. There is authority that's given to us and assigned to us, but an authority that refuses to submit to the authority of God becomes tyranny. By the way, the anointing of Saul, private. The anointing of David, public. The act of setting aside Saul to be king it symbolizes what God has already done. Samuel doesn't make Saul king. The Lord has made Saul king. Samuel is simply ratifying what the Lord has already done. The Lord made your mother and father your mother and father. The Lord has allowed people to be your immediate supervisor. The Lord has placed you in circumstances of obedience and submission. Do our immediate supervisors always honor the Lord? <laughs> Not always. So here's the question. Does God still set aside people for specific tasks and special service? I think the answer is yes. Are there people who begin with what looks like an ordinary task and it winds up becoming an extraordinary calling? I think the answer is yes. Are there people like Samuel that God uses to speak and to guide and direct? I think that the answer is yes. Is it possible for God to guide people in the choice of a leader? I think that the answer is yes. Can Christians and congregations ask God for God's will and God's guidance? I think that the answer is yes. Can God's will and God's guidance come from what seems like some pretty ordinary and mundane circumstances? Well, I think that the answer is yes. But we'll talk more 
and we'll set it up for chapter 10, verse 1, when we come back in our study in 1 Samuel. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. That even as we look back on our own life, that you've used people and circumstances to lead us in a particular direction where the end result was going to eventually be to be in the exact place that you wanted us to be so that we could be used by you, so that we could know you, so that we could love you, so that we could enter into your service. And Heavenly Father, as we think about our lives and we think about the past and how you've been faithful to us over and over and over again, Lord, we pray that we would honor you even now. That we would remind ourselves, because you've been faithful in the past, we have every reason to believe that you're going to be faithful in the present. And Lord, we pray that we would give our children godly advice. Lord, we pray that we would speak to them and minister to them. But we also pray that we would point them in the direction of Jesus. And again, Lord, we commit these things to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.